This is the Talk Theater in Chicago interview podcast. I'm your host, Ann Nicholson-Weber, and my guest this week is Gigi Pritzker, who is one of the producers of Million Dollar Quartet, the show that spent a long time in Chicago and is still here, but is also being now produced on Broadway and just received a number of Tony nominations. So I wanted to talk, Gigi, about just the story of how this happened, how you found the show, how you brought it you know, through these many stages. And so we can just start at the beginning. When did you first run into it? It's a long and meandering story. It may take up the entire 30 That's minutes. That's fine. That's the point. <laughs> um, so we've been working on the show for eight years. Mm-hmm. And how we became involved, and we as my partner, Ted Rollins, and I were relevant productions. Um, so about eight years ago, uh, I owned a theater in L.A. called The Coronet. And we did... Um, Lots of small musicals, commercial. It wasn't a not-for-profit. It was a commercial theater. Mm -hmm. Um, And in our space, we had a main stage of about 300 seats. We had an upstairs that was about 125 and a couple of small spaces downstairs where we would do workshops and readings. So this uh, project, Million Dollar Quartet, was being done by someone who rented the theater, mm. um, actually rented a space. They didn't rent the theater. And they were just doing a reading of um, a script called, at that time, it was called Heartbreak Hotel, I believe. Uh-huh. It was not called Million Dollar Quartet. Um, and it was a little bit of a mess, mm-hmm. but you could see in there was something really great. Mm-hmm. And um, Ted... Uh, I, I'll never forget it. I was walking down the breezeway, and he came out of the room, and he said to me, hey, have have you ever heard of this thing? There was like this night at Sun Records, and I don't know if you heard of these guys, Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, <laughs> Elvis Presley, and, and Jerry Lee Lewis. I was like, Ted, what rock have you been under? <laughs> yeah, of course I've heard of them, but I didn't know about the night. Nobody right, really knows right. about the night. It seems too good to be true. It's hard to believe. Yeah. And I, to this day, people say, well, but so you made that up, right? Right. But we didn't. It's history. It's right. fact. It's right. documented. Anyway. That's so whose idea was it initially? Initially, it was Floyd Mutrix's mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm. And Floyd contacted a gentleman by the name of Colin Escott. And Colin had written a book called There'll Be Good Rockin' Tonight. And it was the story of Sun Records. Uh-huh. Colin, who lives in Nashville, and incidentally is an Englishman, so it's kind of funny, um, is the really our, our best scholar on early rock and roll. He is an absolute encyclopedia of early rock and roll, U.S. rock and roll. Huh. Um, and so he wrote the book. Uh, Floyd got together with him, and they decided to adapt it to a stage piece. Um, and and very early on in that process is when we got involved. So you saw this reading in, at the Coronet Theater that you were owning and sort of running as a as sort of an incubator, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then what? And then what? Oh, God. And then eight years of hilarity ensued. Uh, then we decided we wanted to become involved in it. It had turned out that Floyd had um, independently approached John Cassette or mm-hmm. someone, not Floyd, someone else. I, again, it gets fuzzy back yeah. here. Eight years is a long time ago. Yeah. And and anyway, the long story short is John Cassette became our partner on the producing side. Mm-hmm. John is a fantastic human being whose father started the Grammys. Mm-hmm. Um, John runs the Grammys. And... Um, he 
uh, was tour manager for Sha Na Na for years. So John also is in the music business uh-huh. uh, in his life as well. Well, that's that's an important aspect of the show is that it is so centered on the music. It's, right. you know, it's, I don't know if you counted the minutes, how much of it is actually just the music, but it's clearly the, the heart of it. Um, well, now there was a production at, or a reading in Florida, and there's one in Seattle. So where do those come into the story? So the way we, Ted and I, develop all of our stuff, and we have a number of musicals that are in different um, stages of development, and the way we do it is we tend to um, do a number of workshops and readings, and then we try to stage them. Um, with generally smaller not-for-profits around the country. Mm-hmm. We've gone to the Village Theater in Seattle for a number of our productions, and this one also um, went to the Village. Uh, prior to the Village, we did a production at Seaside Theater in Daytona Beach, which sadly is no longer mm. um, a theater, but it was terrific. It was a beautiful space, and that was the first place we did a full production of the show. And was that just someone had a connection to that particular theater, or did you kind of do a national search for a cool little space, or how how does that work? Well, because we're in the theater business, Mm -hmm. uh, Ted and I go to the league conferences, and in the league conferences you meet, you know, certainly all of the different operators throughout the country. Um, And so Lester Malizia, who was running Seaside Theater at the time, you know, was someone that came to our attention. We knew we wanted to put the show somewhere and so reached out to a bunch of different places and it was something that he was interested in and fit with his season. Uh-huh, and so right. just that a good match. And do the do the nonprofits that host the kind of development productions then get any piece of it? It's a it's an interesting and sometimes I know it can be a difficult relationship between commercial producers and nonprofit theaters and there's tons of stuff written about in American theater magazine and it's kind of a thing. So I'm interested just in how you manage those relationships. Yeah, it um it depends on the deal you make. Mm-hmm. Um it depends on you know what the not-for-profit is bringing to the table, what you're bringing to the table. Um so each one of them is different. In our case, um we have been I think very cognizant of the places that we that the show has been on its trail, mm-hmm. and so we we like to and are happy to give credit to um, uh, Daytona, to Seattle, the Village Theater, and Rob Hunt, mm-hmm. and to Goodman mm-hmm. and Rock um, Schulfer in Chicago because that was a an important part of our journey as well. Um, all three of those productions were different structures mm-hmm, as right. far as how we worked in their space and what they provided and what we provided. So, um, so it, it just, just depends. Right, it just depends. So at the Goodman, that was such an interesting um, choice. I remember, I think Chris Jones wrote kind of a little something about, huh, interesting, they're commercial producing in this little show at the Goodman. Um, how did that come about and why did you choose Goodman? It came about because uh, after Seattle, which was very successful, the mm-hmm. Village Theater was the per- first place to have cats in mm-hmm. um, years ago. And so they have sent more than a couple shows to Broadway from the Village. Mm-hmm. It's a terrific little theater. It's a great place. And I can't say enough about Rob Hunt and about the whole staff there. They're great. So when we were in Seattle and it became kind of, clear that maybe the show had an audience. Mm-hmm. It did very well there. Um, then we thought, okay, where are we going to go next that's a really a bigger market, a mm-hmm. place we can have a sit down um, to be for a long time? 
And I selfishly wanted it to be in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, I felt like Chicago was a very good market for us. I felt like um, we're a good theater town, but we're also a good music town. Mm -hmm. And so the combination of the two was a great yeah. place for us. And I'm here. So right. <laughs> uh, so then it became Chicago, although I have to say there was a, a minor tussle with uh, John and Ted, who are both based in L.A. To do and, it there. Yeah, and I mm -hmm. really didn't want us to be in L.A. because mm -hmm. L.A. is great, but not for the stage we were in in our development and for mm -hmm. what we were trying to establish for the show. Mm -hmm. So um, so we ended up Chicago, and then the question was, how do we want to be in Chicago? What do we want to be? Um, <clears throat> so we approached a number of different theaters in the Chicago area, and it turned out that Goodman made the most sense for a variety of reasons, and they were very receptive to us being there, um, and they had the space at the Owen, which was perfect. Mm -hmm. um, so we weren't in their season, um, but we had a nice five-week run. They were very supportive. Was it in the summer, or when did you do it? October. October. So they, they just happened to be dark in the Owen during that yeah. time. Uh -huh. Yeah, they just had a hole in the Owen, and it was mm -hmm. perfect for yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. But they haven't ever done that before, have they? I I wasn't aware of any other. I don't think so. Yeah, I'm so not it's sure. Kind of a one-off. It, well, it was, you know, I think, and to their credit, it was a flyer for them. They mm -hmm. weren't really sure, right? And um, they knew that, you know, I think the downside was limited for them, frankly, mm -hmm. and that's probably the right decision for right. them and their board to make. Right. So I think their feeling was, worst comes to worst, right. it's just keeping keeping the theater busy and we'll get some revenue. Right. Um, I don't think they or us really knew how well it was going to turn out. Right. Um, so I think it was a very pleasant surprise for all of us. But they must have needed to kind of vet it artistically. I mean, because the world is not going to necessarily make the distinction between whether this is theirs or not theirs. So how did they do that? Did they well, see it? Well, do you know, yes, they did. And mm -hmm. luckily, we at that point had established a track record, right? Mm -hmm. So we had been in um, Daytona right. and had been successful. We had been in Seattle and uh, had been successful. And I believe they sent Steve or somebody from Goodman. I don't think Rock went, but I think somebody from Goodman went mm -hmm. and saw the show in Seattle because we were still running. Right. And, you know, the thing about the show is, it you know, when you see it, in front of an audience and people are going crazy and right. they're clapping and screaming right. and having a great time. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to right. figure out this is that good. this is a lot of fun. Right, 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 right. So I think once they saw it and they saw our materials, they knew mm -hmm. we had created, you know, real materials and professional looking materials. So right. I think they were comfortable that the level of the production was to their standard. Right, right. Well, so I think one thing I always like to try to do is put the listener into your head, essentially. Oh. So when you're thinking... <laughs> wow, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, okay. When you're thinking about where to put this in Chicago and you're sitting around a conference room table talking to your partners, what kinds of things are you saying? Is it, let's do it at Goodman because what? Let's see. What kinds of things are we saying? We're saying things like... You know, and each one of these things, someone once said to me, theater is completely handmade. Mm -hmm. And it's a really good statement because it really yeah, is true. Right. Um, and each one of them is so different, the path they take, the what's best for the show, right. all those things. Right. So all I can address is... not a is, formula, obviously. No, not at all. for this show, this at show, this time, at that time, in this city, exactly. you were saying... Right. Uh, 
there were a few key factors for us. Mm-hmm. One was we knew we had the script we wanted. Mm-hmm. We knew we understood. And it wasn't an arrogance. It was simply we had lived with this right. for seven years. Right. Um, we knew we had assembled a, an, assembled a group who understood this particular show. Colin Escott being someone who understands rock and roll so completely and the history. Right. Um, John Cassette and his background with the Grammys and understanding music. You know, it, it was a really great group. Everybody brings something to the table that helped make it what it was. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't that we were uh, coming in with a lot of hubris and saying, nobody can touch this, we understand it. But we wanted to be very protective in certain respects that we were true to what was working about it because we had done it enough to know what was working. So for us, that was important. Mm -hmm. We wanted to bring it somewhere where they understood and trusted us to know our show. Um, We were looking for a place that, frankly, would give us the um, good housekeeping seal of approval Mm -hmm. to the market because we knew that this was pretty much going to be our last not-for-profit stop Mm -hmm. and that we were going to have to be on our own and fly at that point. You know, when you're in a not-for-profit environment, you have the security of knowing there's a subscription base and there's things that will cushion you during your run. Um, And so we felt it was important for us to establish ourselves in this market um, in that way. Right. Um, so one of the institutional theaters, one of the yeah. name brand, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because for us to have just gone out of the box and been at some small theater like the Apollo oh. where we ended up mm-hmm. would have been a really big uphill climb for mm-hmm. us. And we would have had to invest an awful lot of marketing money and yeah. time right. to build that audience. So by doing it at Goodman, you kind of had a safe dry run, more or less, where you're beginning to build word of mouth in Chicago. Uh, That's what we felt. And it was funny because, (laughs) it's so funny, uh, because I don't really come from a theater background necessarily. We, we, I have theater company, Ted and I do theater, Mm -hmm. but we're not kind of the traditional theater uh, people. Right. So that gives you the freedom to think differently. Mm -hmm. And People kept saying to us, well, you know, you can't do that, or that doesn't make sense. That isn't done. Why, that's right, exactly. <laughs> and we kept thinking, okay, why not? but it makes perfect sense right, to us. Right. So we just kind of did. Right. And the funny thing is now I keep hearing people say, yes, well, we're going to do the blah, 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 blah. And, uh-huh. and it's as if it's a, an established way of doing things, right, which right. I think is terrific. You were terrific. the pioneers. Yeah, well, going, it was interesting that you were talking about um, – uh, that what was important to you was having control over the show, one of one of the important considerations. Because to my ear, that kind of almost goes without saying. I mean, it's your show. I mean, and, and I almost wonder if that comes, does that come from a film perspective where ever, ever, people are always sticking fingers in each other's pies? Or would it was it really possible that a house that you were kind of not renting exactly, but, well, I guess you were renting, would try to, you know, interfere well, I don't know if it's interferes so much, but I think it's two things. I think one is this show is really particular and very different from any other show. Mm-hmm. And it's particular in that um, these guys are musicians. Right. They aren't actors. Right. They've learned to act. Some of them are actors. Lance, um, for instance, Lance Guest was in Last Starfighter and had a film career. Right. But as Johnny Cash. As Johnny Cash, yeah. Right. Um, but first and foremost... 
their musicians. Right. And so the way we constructed the show was as if we were putting a band together. Right. It wasn't as if we were putting a show together. That's really interesting. And so yeah. we hired a fantastic guy by the name of Chuck Mead, um, who is a uh, fronts a country music band in Nashville, is steeped in country music in that Nashville world. Mm-hmm. Um, and we hired him as our musical director because we felt very strongly from day one this could never um, feel like, smell like, sound like um, Broadway a show, theater. A musical show. Right, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, whenever we audition people, and it is a constant audition process mm-hmm. with this show, mm-hmm. um, the first thing we, we give as a direction is, okay, now do it as if you're in a nightclub and you're not theater. Right. Um, and, you know, a lot of people aren't trained that way. Right. And so... Um, so that was hard to find. That, yeah, was, that yeah. took a lot. Yeah. Um, and so we felt like we understood how we were developing this show as an authentic music piece, mm-hmm. as an authentic piece of rock and roll history, yeah. and that that was really paramount for us. And so, for instance, the four characters that are portrayed, um, none of them read music. Mm-hmm. Most people don't read music in in you know, 50s and 60s country blues, um, a lot of them were illiterate. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the points of our show, and I think one of the things that um, for me is very important in understanding this show is these guys came from the lowest of the low right. in the rung of society, if you will. Mm-hmm. These guys were hanging out with, they were sharecroppers, they were they were in a time when we were a very divided country they were hanging out with the you know slaves and the sharecroppers and the people that right. were not considered people who would become what these guys became right um and so so to me that history is really really critical mm-hmm. and to be true to that history um these were not people that read music were were trained classically in musical theater or music or any of that. Right. So we wanted to maintain that feel. So as a result, we actually never had a written score for this show, mm, uh-huh. which freaks everybody in musical theater out. Right. They don't get how you can do that. Right. Now we have a score written. Uh-huh. Um, but but until... But it's not written. It's just basically well, taking down, documenting what you had already created, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, a, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. But we didn't... We didn't have that written down right. for a number of years. Right. And and what Chuck did was work with these guys um, to develop the music using what's called the Nashville number system. And it is it is the, the way those guys it's learn music. It's a notation music. system. Uh-huh. Exactly, uh-huh. exactly. So, um, so we really wanted there to be an authenticity mm-hmm. right down to the core DNA of the show. Right. And every person in it really had to buy into that way of doing it. So as we were developing the show, um, these guys were a band. I mean, when they were in Chicago, um, they would play in clubs and yeah. go out and, and, and gig Do gigs, and yeah. jam. Uh-huh. So that was very important to us. So it's mm-hmm. that kind of thing that, that makes the show very different from traditional theater. Yeah. Well, I would think then that First of all, when along the way did someone look at someone else and say, you know, maybe this could even go to Broadway? Oh, gosh. I'll tell you exactly the moment. Uh-huh. It's funny. <laughs> we never, ever, ever thought we would go to Broadway. We we had a whole vision for this show 
that never, ever, ever included Broadway mm-hmm. because we thought it would never work right. on Broadway. Right. And um, so we were headed to London because we figured the show would work really well in London. Buddy Holly's story did really well there. Yeah. They really appreciate early rock and roll. In fact, Paul McCartney owns the Carl Perkins Library. Oh, no kidding. Uh, catalog, yeah. yeah. So Paul McCartney is actually someone we pay royalties to for our show. Uh-huh. Um, so they really appreciate these guys probably more in certain ways than a lot of Americans Kind do. of take them for granted in a way, yeah. I guess. Uh-huh. Um, um, so... So we always figured London would make sense. Mm-hmm. And were you thinking West End or were you yeah. Thinking, yeah. Yeah. So we were headed to London. We went to London. John and Ted and I went and spent time there. Um, we spoke to a number of theater owners. We went and looked at theaters. We did a whole, you know, scout mm-hmm. of London, mm-hmm. tried to understand what the London theater scene was about because very different than yeah. Chicago or Broadway or Would you have looked for a partner or will you look for a partner? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. And we Someone did. who knows the, the territory. We did. That's actually yeah. how BAA, Broadway Across America, came into the to the equation because we knew we didn't know right. London. Right. And so we knew we needed someone who knew London. And Broadway Across America, um, a gentleman named John Gore who runs it is English and has done a lot of shows on the West End, has a relationship with some people there that they hooked us up with. Mm -hmm. And so that's how that evolved. So we were headed to London. Um, In fact, Cameron McIntosh was in Chicago uh, working on Mary Poppins. And I got a call from our company um, manager and very quietly, she said, I think Cameron. Macintosh is at the show. And I said, no, come on. <laughs> she said, yeah. And he didn't announce himself. He oh, didn't wow. buy tickets. He just to... walked up to the box office, right. bought himself a ticket, and right. came in and saw the right. show. So, of course, that caused huge commotion. Right. Um, Eric Schaefer, our director in Chicago, uh, has worked with Cameron before. Yeah. And so after Cameron saw the show, he called Eric, and Eric and I went and sat down with him in Chicago. Um, and he was very complimentary, and he actually had terrific notes. Really, mm. really great notes. Mm. So then we kind of felt like, okay, right, this is something we could do. So we were headed to London. We were going to London. And um, because John Cassette is in the uh, award show business, and it's a very small business, and there aren't that many award shows, um, when Tony Time came up last year, uh, John cajoled and convinced uh, one of his friends who actually was working on the Tonys to let us play the commercial breaks, not on TV, right. but just for, for the, the audience. audience. And oh, that was a smart idea. It was brilliant. Yeah. And so we thought, oh, great, this will be fun, right? Mm-hmm. How cool. We'll go right. play the Tonys. Well, still didn't think Not we because were you're at- trying to get to Broadway, no, just because it'd be fun. it'd be cool, yeah, right. right. So there we are. And the first commercial break comes, and everybody in Radio City Music Hall goes to the bathroom. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my God, right. we, we slept everybody right. out of here, right. and this is a disaster. Right. And so I thought, okay, well, bummer. Here we are. Right. That's life. When the second commercial break came, it, it had kind of filtered out, and mm-hmm. people stayed, and people were riveted, yeah. and people were kind of going crazy. Uh-huh. And we got a lot of inquiries after that. Mm-hmm. And that was when moment. it occurred to us, 
well, oh my gosh, yeah. maybe we could actually do this. If they're going to invite us, I guess we won't say no, <laughs> right? Yeah. It was kind of amazing. Yeah. And I remember we were sitting there and John and I looked at each other and we looked around Radio City Music Hall. You know, one of the things that I love about the show in Chicago mm -hmm. at the Apollo is it's really intimate. You are right, right there. Right. And, and it's great. It's really, really neat. Mm -hmm. So I guess... We didn't really understand how it would translate to right. a big, right? You know, proscenium stage. And the point was, it did, and it did. Yeah, and they played, and that house was filled up, and Radio City Music Hall's big. Yeah. So that was the very moment when we right. looked at each other and thought, "Gosh, maybe we can do this." And okay, so that was a year ago, right? That was the right. Tonys last year, and right. here we are, right? About to be on the Tonys this year. So that's something I'm very interested in talking about. I haven't seen the show um, on Broadway, so I don't know how it translated, but I, I have to imagine that a lot of talk and thought went into how to try to preserve some of that feeling that you're just in the studio, kind of right up close with these guys, and yet you're in a, such a different kind of a space. So, you know, what did you, how did you try to mediate that? What did you do? Well, the process of going to Broadway was first and foremost one of, we cannot ever sacrifice the core of what makes this show so great, right. which is those guys in that room that night right. and the music. Right. Um, and so we were really dogged about not sacrificing mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. And so the book is different uh, between Chicago and New York. Not now. Now we've brought the book from New York back Here, to Chicago right. and, and done it. So but it evolved in that jump. It did. I think fundamentally for us, what we looked at was the emotion of the book. Mm -hmm. And what we discovered was that the show as it had evolved and become in Chicago, the only emotional stake was what will happen when Sam finds out that Cash is leaving. Right. And I think we realized that that kind of wasn't enough to have people really invest in these characters and this story mm -hmm. for that to be the only thing. Mm -hmm. And so what has evolved and what it is now really is the story of Sam Phillips mm -hmm. and what will happen to Sam. Will he sell out to RCA or will he stick to that independent mm -hmm. thing that made rock and roll so great? Which, by the way, is exactly, seems to me, analogous to what you all as producers kept having to stick to in this show, right? Yeah, that's that interesting. Was, I hadn't thought about that. You're kind that's of telling point. your own story. Yeah, right? that's a really good point. I had never thought about it that way, but that's, that's very interesting. Um, cause it, it, it's kind of true, right? Uh -huh. So really what you have now is Sam faced with a whole lot of stuff for him to deal with emotionally. Mm -hmm. And yet at the end, and there's a wonderful monologue that he does where he basically says, no, mm -hmm. I'd rather take a kid who's got heart and soul and sell a hundred of his records than go sell a million of them mm -hmm. by rote. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so he sticks with Sun Records and he sticks with Jerry Lee Lewis and, you know, the others that will come his way. Yeah. And that, I think, is really more satisfying, actually, as the story has evolved. So d is the show, in terms of just the staging, I mean, you're you're in a much bigger space and playing to audiences with a different kind of expectation when you come to a Broadway musical. 
there's kind of this whole baggage that you bring about production values and you know, what am I paying for here? So again, you know, put us in the, the meeting room where you're talking about that. Um, so the one thing we, and this is no disrespect to Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which I saw 12 times with my children <laughs> and we listened to obsessively because yeah. I love the show. But, but one of the things in the room, in my head, in yeah. our discussions yeah. was we're never going to do the Joseph Megamix. Right. That's not our show. Right. Um, but people are paying a lot of money. Right. People have an expectation. Right. And you have to live up to that expectation. It's only right, right if you're asking them to come spend the money and the time that they're doing. Right. So uh, plus you have to fill the space in a emotional right. way. Right. We're um, lucky enough to work with some fantastic designers in New York, mm -hmm. who had some fantastic ideas. Um, you know, Derek McLean did an unbelievable job on the set. It's interesting because the set, it's almost like it can only be a certain set, really, because right. you need a door to go into the recording room. Right. You need a door where they come in from outside. You need the space for the setup of the drums and the bass and the, and the guitars. Right. Right it kind of lands in almost the same configuration with little variations uh -huh. each time. Uh -huh. But what Derek did within that footprint is, I think, really fantastic. It really elevates it, and you really feel like you're in that space. Can you describe at all what, what he, what's the kind of the glitz, let's say, that he added, if that's what it is? What makes well, it Broadway? Yeah, okay, so there's two <laughs> things. And, and Jane Greenwood with the costumes, um, did some amazing stuff. But look, there's two things. One is you've got four times the amount of money as we had in Chicago. Right. <laughs> right. Well, that makes a difference. Right. So stuff flies in New York. Mm -hmm. Stuff couldn't fly here. Mm -hmm. We didn't have the, the money for the set, but we also didn't have the theater with that condition right. to be able to fly stuff. Right. So, um, so in, in the room when we were going to talk about what New York would be, Two things. We weren't going to do the Joseph Mega Mix, and nothing was going to fly. And sitting here now, I can tell you things fly, uh -huh. and <laughs> you were wrong. The coats are glittery, right? So, uh, right. Um, so we, we, you know, we had to go there a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I think it, I think it, it's not so much so that it doesn't make sense for the show, right? Um, and what we really did was we said, okay, the sacred space is the studio, and the show takes place in the studio, and that's really inalienable in yeah. certain respects. Yeah. And what we've always done, even in Chicago, is said to the to the guys, okay, you can break character to a certain degree mm -hmm. once you're out of the show. Mm -hmm. So when you do the four songs in the encore, we show the, the oh, photo. Oh, you're talking about the end. And uh -huh. the end, okay. the last four right. songs, right. Um, that's the right. time to have a good time. Right. Well, in New York, what we were able to do is actually create that physically as well. Uh -huh. So the studio set flies away uh -huh. and we come down with another configuration uh -huh. that is more kind of ethereal. It's not, you're not tied to a place or a time. Right. It's just it's, the music. It's the music. Yeah, and their mm -hmm. coats come down and they have these glittery kind of fantastic right. coats. Right, right. And so, so we were able to take that because we had the money and the space and the ability in New York to a whole nother level. Right. So that's really, I think, where we we made the the real 
rocket launch into something else. I'm trying to imagine. I mean, here that just amped up, and it was just those those last numbers. That finale was just crazy. I mean, the audience would go nuts. I'm trying to picture what happens when you, you know, double that or whatever it is. But well, you know, it's funny. It's so hard for us because I every night when I see the show in New York, you want to like walk down the aisle and just say to people, no, you can get up, right, like get right, up, right, get right. up. It's okay. Right. But there's such a ingrained convention right. when you're sitting in a Broadway house that you, you sit, sit and you clap and right. you do, but you sit. Right. And you know, if you get up, are you blocking the guy behind you? And right. you know, so that it's, it's a nice convention. It makes right. sense. Right. But in this instance, you really want people to get up and into their rock concert and, mentality. Right. Yeah. Or get out in the, in the aisles right. and, you know, right. and enjoy yourself. Right. So I think over time that'll keep happening uh, more and more. Right. Yeah, there's always that phenomenon where audiences create their own cult around a show. Right. I can imagine that happening. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. We've, we've, um, we've been talking about it here in Chicago and I, I think we may have to talk about it in New York too, but we've talked about having frequent buyer cards. Uh-huh. In Chicago, we have people who've seen the show 10 times. Wow. It's kind of extraordinary. Yeah. Um, in New York, we haven't even been playing that long. Right. We've had people that have seen it four times. Wow. And that's an expensive ticket. Yeah. Right. So, um, so it is a show people want to experience again and again. Right. Well, um, I guess we just have to talk just a second about the Tony nominations that, that just happened last week. Was it? When yeah. Long, yeah. I um, think. And, um, just, that must've been fun. (laughs) You know, so hard to believe. I can't tell you. It was funny Uh, because I was in Texas and John (laughs) Cassette called me and it was really early. uh, And, um, he said, something's going on. Something's going on. I think we won something or something's going on. I said, what do you mean? He said, I I can't figure it out. I keep getting calls and my computer isn't working. So I ran to my computer uh, and we, the two of us were on the phone trying uh, to figure out. And I said, I, I, I think we got a Tony nomination. I think we got a Tony nomination. Uh, and we're sitting on the phone and then suddenly it became apparent that we actually got three uh, Tony nominations. Yeah. And the two of us just sat on the phone crying like babies I and bet. laughing. And I it bet. was really, it was an extraordinary moment. And I have to say made all the more wonderful by the fact that it's such a great group of people that we've all been together for so many years and cared about this show so much day to day. Um, the family got it. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. And, and it was really, it's just an amazing thing. And the four guys that we brought from Chicago for them to be on the journey they're on and have those things given to them. Right. It doesn't matter if we win really, truly. Right. It doesn't. It's right. just extraordinary what's happened. Yeah. Well, congratulations, and thanks so much for joining me to talk about it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.